Welcome to the Change Management Reviews Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. On this episode, Editor-in-Chief Teresa Moulton talks with Paul Gibbons, speaker, consultant, and author of The Science of Organizational Change. I'm sure you'll enjoy this discussion about Paul Gibbons' 25 years in the business. Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast. My name is Teresa Moulton, and I'm here with my colleague, Paul Gibbons. Paul Gibbons is an author, speaker, and consultant. His beat is helping business leaders use science and philosophy to make better strategic decisions, implement change, innovate, change culture, and create workplaces where talent flourishes. His most recent book, The Science of Organizational Change, has been hailed as the most important book on change in 15 years. Between writing projects, he consults, coaches, and speaks with businesses such as Microsoft, Google, HSBC, KPMG, and Comcast. So without further ado, welcome, Paul. Hey, thank you. Hi, Teresa. Hi. It's really great great to have you here. Um, you know, I really enjoyed, you know, the webinar that you did as part of our Virtual Change Management Summit last fall, and um, your book and your focus on behavioral economics. So I'm all excited to hear about what's going on. And um, I know you have a new book uh, coming up, too, that you'll be able to tell us about. So I'm excited for the conversation. Okay, cool. Good. Let's rip. Okay. So um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking at your book was what led you after 25 years to write The Science of Organizational Change? Well, yeah, it was a funny summer of 2013. I'd always, uh, you know, one of these people who was going to go to their grave thinking I could have been a contender, and, and that was me with writing. You know, I'd, I'd always thought, you know, how many people say, oh, you know, I got a book in me. If I could only have the time, uh, you know, that kind of victimy stuff. And I was in the summer of 13, and work had slowed down, and I was feeling, you know, as an independent practitioner, I should be used to it by now, but you never really are. So I was feeling all kind of bummed out about living in Colorado and didn't really know any clients out here. So I finally thought, okay, well, I'm going to get on with it and do it. So, so, so I was wanted to write a book that wouldn't take me two years and a lot of research. I wanted to write something simple. I wanted to, for my first book, I wanted to do something simple. So I wanted to write the ABCs of change management because I think, I think you and I agree on this, that while there's some advanced concepts in train change management, I, I think... I think you think, too, that if organizations just did the basics right of dealing with stakeholders, just did the basics right of right. having a vision, things would be like the ABCs of change management, change management 101, what you'd learn in the first day of a course on change management. They just did that, the hygiene stuff well. So I was going to write that book, the hygiene book, um, and I was going to try and write it in the summer and because I, you know, I didn't want to have a half-finished book and set myself my first project to be too, too enormous a task. So anyway, right. so I ended up, I was reading a lot of other stuff at the time. I was reading a guy called Nassim Taleb, who writes a book, wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. I was reading Dan Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. I was reading Nudge by Taylor and Sunstein. I was reading The Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. And, I, and it just struck me at a time that there was an incredible richness of stuff that wasn't finding its way into books I'd read on change management, and I've read them all, right, by everyone that comes out. So I thought to myself, well, how, maybe I should be more ambitious. So I started to drip feed in some of this newer stuff 
on cognitive biases from Kahneman and Tversky, for example. And so I ended up having a whole chapter on that. Anyway, this book blossomed into a two-year project that I didn't want it to be. And so I guess what I like about Dunnett is it's not really the ABC book anymore. Uh, it's really for, I hope, to try and take change management to another level. And so it's got a lot of that really new stuff from outside business schools, you know, from economists and mathematicians and statisticians and complexity theorists and all of that. So that's what I ended up trying to do in a kind of humble way is kind of bring some of that outside stuff into the change management canon. So I didn't write the ABC book. At the end, I, I did something something bigger. I hope is I hope it's more valuable. That's great. And I know you've been uh, in the change management field for over 25 years, and um, over that period of time, I'm wondering uh, what you've seen has changed the most, what hasn't changed at all. Did you come across anything uh, as you're pulling your book together that might be interesting for us to note? Yeah, it's funny. I went, I went, over, I went over to the dark side. I went over to the dark side of the force, probably change management, probably mid-1990s, and uh, I was working with a bunch of consultants from Anderson Consulting, now Accenture. Um, who were very technical consultants, and I said I was interested in change management, and I wanted to retrain as a change manager, and as a coach, as a leadership development dude, and do a degree and all that. And 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 one of them, you know, we were drinking one night, and one of them was like, uh, question my sexual orientation. He's like, oh, you know, boy. you're gonna go, you're gonna go gay on us too, you know, whatever. Like, so I, 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 you know, I can laugh about that now, but that's the way that the people side of organizations was viewed by the technical guys, you know, the guys that were doing the quote-unquote real work, right? Uh, the, we, were, we were interested in the soft stuff. And then um, Accenture, which were a very well-regarded techno- tech, uh, consulting firm, um, had an expression for change management people on projects in the early 1990s, and it was called, you'll love this as a woman, Chicks Making Slides. Oh, my gosh, I've heard that. Right, isn't that gross, right? So you have ignorance and sexism in the same sentence. It's amazing. Um, so, so that's the way it was thought then. The people side of organizations was thought of by the strategists and by the finance people and by the experts on process improvement and by the project management people, the Gantt chart people. It was thought of as kind of, you know, something we have to put up with, something that's worse. It was the first thing to get struck from a proposal when the proposal was too expensive you know, the partner in charge of the project would say, what's all this change management stuff here? You know, we don't need to do any of that to get the costs down because obviously proposals are submitted in a competitive environment, so you want to get your edge. So the first thing they cut is the is the people side. And, and my brother uh, is now a partner at IBM, and he said, you know, when proposals, projects come under cross-pressure, the first thing they, they cut is change management. The second thing is talent development and people development. And the third thing is a program management office. So all the stuff that makes a project go uh, gets cut. So anyway, that's the way it was. Now, we'd have a very good story if all of that had changed, right? That 25 years later we're in. Right. Uh, we've had a whole new dawn of change management, right? And it's just like a different world. We're expected, uh, you know, we're, we're respected and and invited to use our expertise and people side to really bring, align people with change and develop leaders and 
anyway, it's not the way the world is. But it's better than it was, I think. So I think I, I let me just check. I mean, do you think it's a little better than it was? I think it's a lot different than it was. Um, you know, it's better in terms of the fact that there's, uh, I think, companies that are more educated on what change management is and what it can do. Um, but I think we're also heading into another uh, area where there's a little bit of danger in terms of, you know, all these certifications and then that being the checked box that people need to have done in order to do the work. And I think, you know, the experience piece is, is important as well, too. So It certainly is. Um, and, I, you know, I have to say, like, if we look at it in the big picture of things, it's probably all the check boxes and the certifications are definitely a step in the right direction, right? Yes, they definitely are. Uh, so it's not that the knowledge isn't valuable. I think, I think I don't know if you agree with this, but I think it's the knowledge is more inside people's heads than in the practices they use as project managers. Yeah, and to me, it's it's even a little bit different than that. It's that you know the actual art of moving an organization forward. You know, some of the softer skills that you need to assess situations and really coach executives and things like that, that isn't, you know, taught as part of the uh, certification program. So that's where I'm seeing a bit of a an opportunity for people to develop more. So it's just different. Yeah, so I think, I think, I think with changes, there's an acknowledgement that is valuable and that people want the, the three-hour version, the certification, the right. three-hour webinar, and become experts in change management. So the acknowledgement is valuable, and then people, we don't yet have the structures. Well, this is what you're trying to do with your business, right? So we don't <laughs> yet have the, stru the structures to really give people the skills. And you know, it's funny, it's one of the things I think about learning and development is to, 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 to a very large extent, um, I'm actually thinking of writing a blog post about it, but I'll I'll I'll, sh I'll share it with you. Okay. My kids my kids taking the piano, right? Mm-hmm. And there's two things he does in piano. One of them he's six, right? So one of them he's learning to read music. So he studies music and he studies quarter notes and half notes and the treble clef and the bass clef and sharps and flats and black keys on the piano and white keys on the piano and he studies all that theory, right? Mm-hmm. So he learns to, in a sense, read a book. He can almost, you know, he's starting to be able to read music. And then there's the other piece of reading the, playing the piano, learning to play the piano, which is actually getting your fingers to do the correct thing on the keys. Right. The practice of playing the piano. Now, those are two quite different things. And I still think we still teach management a lot in business schools. I've worked in, I've worked in so many of them now. We still teach it as, when we're learning change management, when we're learning strategy, we still teach it as my kid, the six-year-old, learning to play the piano. We're learning, in a sense, to read music. Mm -hmm. We learn the concepts of music, and I think this speaks to exactly what you said, is that we're not really teaching them how to practice. Yeah, music. that's really that's a really well-put analogy or uh, metaphor. Yeah, I think that works really well for what I was trying to say. And I don't think you can learn to, you know, I mean, we have the practice field, so we do case studies, mm -hmm. um, and we do kind of off-site workshops, sometimes leadership development workshops that give people an experience of leadership, so say outward bound things. But, you know, I don't think you can learn to play the violin on a football field. Right. Um, and so there's something that's really important about being practicing your skills in context. Yes, I agree with that. 
especially where whereas so much of uh, the change management skill set really is, you know, the sensing, the, um, you know, reading the organizational dynamic, uh, understanding how the power base works in, a, in an organization, um, some of the things that are more intangible than, say, a stakeholder analysis or a change impact assessment, um, you really need, in my opinion, you really need both of those to come together to really you know, move move an organization forward. Yeah, and that's a good framework of understanding it. There's the kind of the skills stuff and the tools of change management, and then there's the, the craft or the art, as you put it, of coaching someone or facilitating a team, and really there's no way to learn that from a checklist, I'm afraid to say. Right, I agree with you. I agree with you. And so, Paul, you know, you've... Um, pulled together really incredible book you've done some teaching you've done consulting um you know and with all that under your belt uh where do you think change management needs to go now well i i think it's somehow you know some good some things have changed in 25 years and some things are still absolutely the same okay. and and really 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 flawed paradigm so the first thing is that it's still basically a specialist discipline. Mm. And I think a lot of what we are asked to do as change management consultants is come in and sprinkle change pixie dust on a team. And I think that the job of a leader is to bring people with, to align people, to deal resistance, to motivate people, to connect them to the big picture, um, to help them make sense of the change, to plan change, to engage people, you know, all of that stuff. Well, if they're not doing that, what are they doing? Right. So a lot of the stuff that we get asked to do is a sort of band-aid for them being crap leaders, right? Not really doing their job as a leader, if I may be blunt. Right? <laughs> That's blunt. I, I, business schools, <laughs> you know, it's funny, like my education, right? I mean, I've learned, you know, it's like going back to, how much do you use of an MBA? I mean, and how much of the stuff that you're doing every day? The stuff I just mentioned, the engagement, the people development, the alignment, the dealing with resistance, the coaching, you're doing that every day of a leader if you're doing your job. That's not what you're learning in an MBA. You generally spot it by and large, right? So, um, and it's a bit like, you know, how I learned to do it in my life. In high school, I studied, you know, calculus and chemistry. And how much am I using today as a businessman and an entrepreneur? It's a bit like that with an MBA and what people actually do as managers. So I think... Management education, leadership education needs to change so that what we do is change management is like like a core part of the canon. Right. You know, it's like you, you, you can't call yourself a business manager and a business leader unless you have, you're minimally competent at the things that change management professionals are called on to do. So I just I'll pause there. I got like three of these things, but what do you think? What do you think of that as an idea? I think it's true. Uh, in the change management review um, directory, we did a directory of um, change management organizations that have that offer um, either education, consulting, or um, certification training for. Uh, practitioners and in terms of the universities there's really only about I think it's seven seven or eight universities that have programs specifically for organizational change um, otherwise it is you know a class here or there if it's in an OD program um, yeah. 
but it's not a prevalent type of course that you'd see at the MBA level where it's more of a generalist education. Absolutely right. I mean, Harvard has 100 electives or something in their MBA. I reviewed this for my book, and one of them is something to do with change. Mm-hmm. Right? One of them is leading change. So, so that's weird, right? So is, you know, if you look at that, like those 100 electives, is like, is leading change 1% of what leaders do day in and day out? I don't think so, right? It's it's more like like half. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if it's not half of their effort, it's half of their headaches. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. So okay, so that's that's the that's the thing. It's still, you know, not front and center of how people think of themselves as leaders. And then the other well, there's another couple of these things. One is it's still an afterthought. So the idea now is that a bunch of people get together, they decide where the organization needs to go strategically or operationally or in one sense or another. They create a project and a project plan, and then they go, oh my God, what are we going to do about the people? And so there's that bit about, okay, we need to put this stuff in afterwards, engage people. So the paradigm is we figure out where we want to go, and then we lift people up the hill to, you know, we bring people along with us. Mm-hmm. Now, that's hard, right? Yes. Because they've not been engaged. So you come in and you say, oh, by the way, here's the new strategy and here's the new uh, – so we don't engage people with strategy and operations strategic and operational structural change early enough, which means that the job of engaging and dealing with resistance is considerably harder. Mm-hmm. And I think the best, the people who are best have this continuous stakeholder engagement. They're mm-hmm. continually communicating. They're continually sense- sensing. And so when there is a change of direction of some kind or another, the people feel a sense of they've already been listened to and they've already been consulted our job or the job of engagement is that much easier. So still that's still an afterthought. Mm-hmm. I, still, it's, um, I think change management is still too narrow in its intellectual reach. So, I mean, I think a lot of it came up from national training laboratories in the 1960s or organization development. A lot of it's from psychology and a lot of it's from uh, business schools. And I just think change is uh, an incredibly complex thing. Human behavior is incredibly complex. If you look at what drives human behaviors? Lots of the stuff from economics, lots of the stuff from behavioral change is coming from outside the canon that you would normally find in change management books. So you and I have had this discussion before. Where's the best stuff on influencing? Is it in the change management OD world? Absolutely not. You know where it comes from? A guy who's a marketing guy, like right. CLD. Right, and so I just think we think too narrowly. We 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 get our idea pool and our toolkit from just too narrow a range of disciplines. Um, That's an interesting perspective. I I haven't um, I haven't heard anyone else really put it that way. I I as an editor, I look at it um, that way only because I'm I want to know what's new, what's going on. So I look at other industries or or functions and professions and try to interpolate the impacts on the change management world. But from a pure play um, point of view in terms of defining where the body of knowledge comes from for change management, you know, I I don't think that it, it's been stretched to its um, possibilities yet. Yeah. I mean, we need a certain amount of humility, right? I mean, you know, as human beings, you know, we haven't yet as human beings – uh, you know, we understand, you know, fundamentally how a chemical reaction works and in enormous detail how that works. We don't understand 
at any kind of exhaustive level how a human being works. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, however, however good the latest theory seems, they're always partial, they're always incomplete, and you know, they're, they're, they're quite often wrong. Uh, so the social sciences and psychology are, are very much in their infancy. So, so I think we need a, a certain amount of, of humility when it comes to understanding people, period, you know, mm-hmm. full stop, as we say in England. Um, and in business, it's no different. I think, I think we need to think of ourselves as learners. And I think from my point of view, it's like if we can draw that from a lot of the other disciplines. So one of the things that's very interesting, for example, in the management world, which is insufficiently discussed, is evidence-based management. Mm-hmm. So where did that come from? That didn't come from business school. That didn't come from a psychologist. You know where it came from? Doctors. Mm. So here you have an example from medicine called evidence-based medicine, you think medicine was very evidence-based because it's very scientific, human body is very scientific, but no doctors operated on tradition, on myth, on ritual, on what they learned 25 years ago in medical school. They didn't use evidence-based practice to decide what, how they were going to treat. And so it was a revolution in medicine that was started in 1998, it was evidence-based medicine, and that's slowly spreading to management, evidence-based policies, evidence-based education. I think it's the way we need to go as a world is, you know, using the best evidence at our disposal for solving the problems that we have to solve. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of something that comes from a, another discipline. And, you know, by and large, change management people don't read books on medicine, Um, (laughs) on public health. They don't read books on mathematics and statistics. They don't read books. So that's, that's kind of what I mean. And one of the best examples, for example, of behavioral change, which saved, hundreds of millions of dollars at a hospital is this example of, uh, you'll find it in the book, you'll also find it in Switch by um, Heath and Heath, mm-hmm. uh, is this idea of when you put in a central line in a patient, so if the IV is going to be in for too long, they put it in like deeper, a central line, it goes in different places. It's a more permanent IV. If you get that wrong, you'll get a systemic blood infection, you'll get sepsis, the person dies, right? Mm. If you put the central line in it correctly. So how do you get the doctors and nurses that are doing so to comply with behavioral protocols around putting in a central line. Well, one guy who's, I think, from Johns Hopkins developed a five-step protocol, developed a tool called a checklist, and used that and studied the effect on patient mortality and on behavioral change and on costs in a hospital. He saved like $150 million in a year because when a central line goes south, you know, you're a million dollars and you've got to be hospitalized right. the person. You've got, you've got lawsuits, whatever. See there, saved $150 million. So what is this? This is a five-step checklist. If you look in the cockpit of an airline, people are using checklists of behaviors. Right. And so we don't use, so where do those two tools come from? Well, one comes from aviation and it comes from medicine. So are we being painstaking enough about exploring all of the great ideas out of the world and thinking, oh, I wonder if this would make a difference in my organization with my team. So I don't think that happens enough. So that's my that's my hobby horse. I'm sorry for cutting out to Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I think those are good examples. Well, I, yeah, the, the, Heath, the Heath Brothers book has got, I think, some superb examples of very good stuff like that. So just like two more things, I think in the change management world and the OD world, we still think about words and not behaviors. And so what I mean by that is that I still see when people want to change culture, what they do is they do a culture survey, 
mm-hmm. which is on mm-hmm. people's heads. So if you do a culture survey, they say, oh, you know, what do I want? Honesty, integrity, uh, communication, involvement. You hear all these things that are aspirational of what Edgar Schein, the culture guru of the 1960s, called espoused values. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the behaviors, and they're human beings, they're often different, right? Yes. Yeah, that our values, you know, I'm if I was lived up to my values, you know, I mean, none of us do, right? If I always say, if you if you live up to your values and standards, they're too low. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so, so we still do that, and then and then when we want to do culture change and value change, we develop a value statement, which is words, right? So, what are our values for organizations? So I don't want to say this words. This is this is like. Um, irrelevant or useless, I think it's a great place to start is with the words, but what really matters is the behaviors. And we don't think enough about what are the behaviors, if we want to change culture, what are the rituals, what are the habits, what are the behaviors that we need to change rather than just the words. Because it's very easy to change the, the words and create a, a value statement that's word. It's, it's much more difficult to change behaviors that line up with those values. I still think we're still in the paradigm when we assess culture and organizations, we assess the words that come out of people's mouths on the, on the culture surveys. And we don't really watch what they do. So that's my, again, one other thing. And then the last thing I think is a lack of accountability for results is that, this is partly a hobby horse of mine in training and development, is that we really don't hold trainers and people who teach in organizations, whether they be in business schools or consultants like myself. I ran a training consultancy. So... You know, we let them off the hook easy with not producing behavioral results for the people in the program. So, and again, we're sort of satisfied if they remember a few concepts and they fill out a happy sheet and say that we were, like, you know, really these wonderful, inspirational people. And trainers and training development aren't held to account for behavioral change and business results. And so there's a sort of lack of accountability there, um, which is great from my point of view because... And, you know, I made a lot of money in that field as a trainer and an educator, but I always felt my clients weren't doing a tough enough job with me mm-hmm. holding out for real behavioral change and real business change. So that's my, uh, that's a, that's a list of my whines about that. <laughs> my whines, my, you could call it, if you wanted to be nicer to me, you could call it my vision for the future of change management. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no, that's my moan, my moan, my, my, I had this guy in the, I had this guy on the call who moaned at me for a while about, how messed up things were, but no, okay, call it a vision for change. Oh, that's funny. I think that you make some good, really good points, and um, and that's one of the things that I love about this field is that, you know, you really can look at change management as a discipline from different uh, perspectives and facets and, you know, still learn something new. Uh, and 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 that's the that's one of the things that I really love about it. Yeah, well, you're doing, I think, much needed work. I don't think there's a, there are many there are many many organizations like the Change, Change Management Review around. We don't really have um, a store of knowledge, a hub of of you know great leading edge knowledge and change management around. So that's, I guess, your mission or one of your missions, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and really, I mean, our our real mission is also to um, really help facilitate some different types of thinking across the world um, so that, you know, there is there is a knowledge base that's becoming more public uh, and more shared uh, between change practitioners everywhere. And, you know, and then I think also, you know, I don't want the profession to go away. You know, I, I really want the profession to have a stick in the ground and, um, 
really start to formalize itself so that, you know, so that all these things you're talking about, um, we can put into action and, you know, make sure that future generations of change professionals learn from what we're doing right now. Yeah, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's the tacit knowledge. You know, there's so many people with over 25 years of experience in this field, and, you know, as they start to retire, uh, I keep thinking, oh, my gosh, well, where are we going to put all this tacit knowledge? It's just retiring, and there's many fewer people coming into the field. So um, well, that's, an, that's interesting. Now, that's interesting. Is that the case? Well, yeah, that's the case. That's the case. So, well, as long as we were replacing the specialists with knowledge in the hands of the generalist leader and manager, if we're not doing that, we're making a big mistake. I mean, yes. I'm all in favor of there being fewer change management specialists, but to fill that gap, you know, you need managers and leaders to be doing the jobs that we do, which is engagement and alignment and dealing with resistance, connecting people with the big picture and you exactly. know, making sense of change for them, right? So if they were all doing that, then okay, more, less fewer specialists, that'd be a good thing. That would um, be. It would be. And then then it really would, I think, put some um, skin on the bone uh, around how important this profession is. You know, if it can actually leave that kind of legacy in organizations, then it can start to expand and become, uh, you know, applied to other other thoughts and tools and management theories. Or non-management theories, actually. Um, yes, 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 yes. That's great. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, we're running out of road here. What should we cover in the last three or four minutes, uh, Teresa? Well, one of the things I was curious about the last time we spoke, Paul, is you had mentioned that you're writing another book called Truth Wars, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it and you know how it may or may not link to the science of organizational change. Oh, Peshaw, if you insist. <laughs> so, uh, so like, it's early days. Um, I've got going to have a proposal out with a few, um, few publishers. You know, one of my things I mentioned ten minutes ago in our talk is that we need to we need to conduct ourselves as a society, both as business leaders, but as consumers, as citizens, and voters. We need to adopt policies that are more aligned with the facts with evidence and with science. So that's, if you want to call it my big project, uh, mm -hmm. my big life project, is that we move the world in that direction. Mm -hmm. So what do we use instead of facts, evidence, and science? We use ideology, we use politics, we use tradition, we use authority. I'll just do what the boss says, you know, rather than what the evidence says. There's a lot of substitutes for the empiricism on evidence-based policy or evidence-based management or evidence-based medicine. So that's where I want to go. And I think we talked, the, the word of the year for 2016 was post-truth. It was the most Googled word in 2016. Huh. And the, the assertion is that we live in a world post-truth where truth matters, you know, less than it ought to or certainly less than it once did. And people are very quick to point to certain political leaders who won't be mentioned as being very, very free <laughs> with, with, the with the facts. For example, claiming that crime is at an all-time high when it's at an all-time low. Right. And not, and not appearing to care when someone says, actually, the evidence shows that it's an all-time no, that's kind of brushed off. It's kind of some elitist interpretation or, well, that's just what the research says. But what really happens, as we know, is crimes at an all-time high. 
or 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 another one is the threat of terrorism, which is like a non-threat. Like if you were to list the top 50 problems that will afflict families in a country like the United States, terrorism wouldn't make it into the top 50, right? Right. Not, not even not even remotely close. But yet we're restructuring our entire foreign policy, military policy around this non-threat. So we're not really making policy in accordance with the evidence. And again, this isn't related to like a new, the new administration in, in Washington or anything like that. It's a much bigger problem. It's a problem uh, both on the left and the right. You know, on the left, um, on the right, you know, we have climate science, which, you know, many people say isn't science. And there's a, the American Petroleum Institute and lots of, you know, there's a lot of a very well-financed campaign to discredit people who, you know, the thousands of people who have PhDs in climate mm -hmm. science to, mm -hmm. to think that, you know, they're all full of shit and they're, excuse my language, and they're all ideologically driven. And, but also on the left, you know, we have a, an outbreak of, of measles. is a killer disease. Well, measles was eradicated when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. The last case of measles in the United States was something around 1990. Um, I, I have to double-check that number, but it's around then. And all of a sudden, it's researching, and it's why it's because... Uh, hippie green whole foods shoppers have decided that vaccinations are bad for their children. Mm -hmm. And so all of the herd immunity we've developed for diseases like measles, which is a killer disease, as is whooping cough, as is the mumps, as is rubella, all these diseases were wiped out. And now they're coming back because people are refusing to vaccinate. So both on the left and the right, there's this kind of willingness to say, I don't care what the scientists say, I'm going to do what I think is right. And so I think that's that's a problem. I think it's a problem for us as consumers. I think it's a problem for us as citizens, as voters. And so Truth Wars is going to be basically about how there's this fight over, you know, what ought to be real, what ought to be science, what ought to be facts. You know, we find a way today to fight over how many people voted. So that's right. like a countable fact. Or how many people were standing in a square during a rally. You know, that's a countable fact. That's not the sort of thing we ought to be debating on. That's fine to debate moral issues. It's fine to debate the, the vision for the country. But we ought not to be having fights over things which are established facts. And I think, and I think that's a scary place. And so I'll just finish this with an anecdote that really, really killed me in 2016. As I was walking a friend of mine, he's a small businessman, so he leans right of center. Mm -hmm. But he's not super ideologically driven. And, uh, you know, we were, as Halloween night, and it was 8 o'clock at night, and it was dark, and the kids were running around, like, collecting candy and all that kind of stuff. And I said to him, you know, what do you think of the election? Like, who, who are you going to think? And he said to me, well, I don't really like the fact, I mean, or no, he said to me, I think, he said, well, I think it's interesting that the Pope has endorsed Donald Trump for president. And I said to him, wow, that's, that's a remarkable thing. I didn't know Popes endorsed political candidates anywhere in the world, right. let alone here, and, and let alone that guy, right? Um, uh, you should fact-check that. You know, you should just go on and Google PolitiFact or factcheck.org or whoever you like and just say, like, what are the facts? Is that a true story or is it fake news? And the guy said, you can't trust the fact-checkers. They're all bent also. Oh. I, I was kind of a throwaway conversation and it was kind of a throwaway remark, but that conversation on Halloween 2016 really stuck, struck, stuck with me. It's stuck with me since. It's like if we live in a world where there's no bottom, where there's no authority, where even things that can be counted or even things like someone said something and now they deny that they said it, even those things which should be incontrovertible, mm -hmm. 
Well, we live in a world where there's no authority, where we don't trust the media, we don't trust any institutions, we don't trust politicians, we don't trust business, we don't trust scientists, where there's no facts on which we can agree. How are we to reason together in a democracy if we can't even agree on some basic facts? Right. Is the economy, is it, is the economy growing or is it shrinking? Is unemployment high or is it low? Right. Is immigration high or is it low? You know, these sorts of very facty facts, you know, we ought to be able to agree on them. And then the interesting dispute is where you go from there, you know. Um, but unless we can agree on the facts, and so Truth Wars is really about the war for facts, racing, how facts are corrupted by, you know, by politicians and by corporations. So that's a new book anyway. That sounds great. Coming soon, coming, coming soon to bookstores near you. No, actually not coming soon. Probably coming in December to bookstores near you. But anyway, that's a new book. Very nice. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, well, thank you. I hope it's, it's, I certainly it's high high target to aim at, but I think it's important. It is important. It is important. And it's very uh, modern. Yeah, well, with luck, you know, it'll sell five million copies and, you know, I'll be on Oprah Winfrey next week. Um, <laughs> Whoever, whoever, whenever she died, whoever is the replaced her, oh. John, Stewart, John Stewart or or Bill Maher or someone like that. Anyway, whatever. Oh, I don't know um, if anyone can replace Oprah. <laughs> you can only dream. Right, right. Aim aim high and fail fail quickly. Um. So anyway, yeah, that's that. That's it. Anyway, it's good to talk to you as always, huh? Yes, and thank you very much for your time. I think um, we covered a lot of different topics and looking forward to your book when it comes out. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Listening to Teresa Moulton of Change Management Review and Paul Gibbons, author of The Science of Organizational Change. Be sure to check out our website at changemanagementreview.com. We also invite you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and join us on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.